so we are wrapping up this series this morning. Uh, this will be the fourth Sunday in Isaiah 58. We're spending some time, some extra time in this chapter, because this is our anchor chapter for 2023. And so we want to start the year uh, by spending some good time in it. So I'll be preaching from the, the last two verses, verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah 58. And from these two verses, I'm preaching from the title, Saved by Sabbath. Saved by Sabbath from Isaiah 58, verses 13 through 14. Uh, as, as my wife could tell you, I am the morning person in uh, our marriage relationship, which means that I tend to wake up before anybody else does in our apartment, which means that the first few minutes of every day are probably going to be the quietest minutes of every day. Most mornings, I lay in bed for a few minutes before getting up and starting my daily routine. A couple of years ago, I started to wonder what it was that made me get out of bed when I did. I don't mean what woke me up, because I don't really have much control over that. I tend to wake up before my alarm goes off. It's just a strange quirk of my personality. So I don't mean what woke me up, but what actually got me out of bed. So I I started reflecting on this because, after all, I enjoy the quiet. I enjoy the peace of those first few minutes of my day. Why not linger in bed a few more minutes? Just me and my thoughts. Okay, I recognize that's kind of a weird thing to reflect on, but I did. And after a few weeks, I discovered that the thing that provoked me out of bed every morning was my thoughts. Not all of my thoughts, of course. I'm very content to lay in bed looking forward to some exciting thing or reminiscing on some enjoyable recent memory. But what was prodding me out of bed every morning was usually some less pleasant thought. An appointment I was dreading, or a difficult conversation I needed to have, or an overdue assignment that I had not completed. Rather than laying there with those uncomfortable thoughts, my body was instinctually getting me out of bed so that I didn't have to think about those things any longer. I could leave the discomfort behind. It was actually a kind of disturbing realization to notice that this is why I was getting out of my bed most mornings. I was starting my day by running away from reality. Rather than bringing whatever it was that was troubling me to God, rather than beginning my day with a quick prayer of gratitude or dependence, something in me, unconsciously, was pushing the difficult thing away by moving on to the distractions of the day. During these past three Sundays, we have been looking at God's invitation to his exiled and besieged people. We've seen how God invited his people to leave behind their transactional religion, to live into God's vision of shalom, and to accept his unconditional love. And behind these beautiful themes is an uglier 
reality. One you and I most likely share with the exiled Israelites. It's this, that very often we are our own worst enemy. God's invitation to his people in this chapter to live as his agents of renewal and restoration was not a new invitation. This was his call from the very beginning. But kind of like my tendency to leave nagging and uncomfortable thoughts behind every morning, Israel had ignored God's invitation to live out their calling and had instead allowed their own worst tendencies to lead them into all kinds of captivities. And so yet again, God comes to his people to free them, to free them from themselves, to welcome them back to himself, the source of their identity and their call. In these last few verses in Isaiah 58, we find that God invited his people to delight in him by honoring the Sabbath. Now, to some of us, this might sound like a strange way to end this chapter. After all, the preceding verses were filled with images of breaking the yoke of injustice, feeding the hungry, restoring broken relationships, and so on. How does taking a weekly day of worship and rest fit into this vision? But for the handful of you who practice Sabbath regularly... I bet the connection is actually clearer because Sabbath can function like, like an elongated version of my first few waking moments every morning. In this weekly day of unhurried non-productivity, a holy space is opened for the deep truths we have been ignoring all week long. A space is opened to acknowledge how we have been living as our own worst enemies. It's on Sabbath that one of the more simple and profound truths about God makes itself known to us again. And it's this. God saves us from ourselves. God saves us from ourselves and the Sabbath is a weekly reminder of this rejuvenating truth. Practicing Sabbath does this for us because as Isaiah notes, keeping the Sabbath requires that we not go our own ways, that we not serve our own interests, and that we not pursue our own affairs. Which is to say that Sabbath checks our instinct to save ourselves. To save ourselves from ourselves. So let's look at how the Sabbath can do this. And because I'm a preacher or trying to be, let's do a little bit of alliteration. The Sabbath reminds us that God saves us from ourselves by directing our paths, by renewing our passions, and by ordering our priorities. How'd I do, Michael? Is that that's okay? Three Ps? Okay. Thank you. The Sabbath reminds us that God saves us from ourselves by directing our paths. 
This whole chapter is bookended by fasting on the top and Sabbath on the bottom. And God calls his people to stop fasting and to stop keeping Sabbath the way they had been doing. It was a call not to abandon fasting or to abandon Sabbath, but to honor God's desires for fasting and Sabbath keeping. Here, Isaiah says that the people have been keeping Sabbath as a way to pursue their own interests, which if you were here for the first sermon about fasting ought to sound very familiar. God says when you pursue, pursue your own interests by keeping Sabbath, when you try to use Sabbath to manipulate God for your own ends, you are trampling on this holy day. Now, let's think about Sabbath for just a minute. There are two versions of the Ten Commandments, one in Exodus and one in Deuteronomy, and they both include keeping Sabbath as one of the commandments. The text says that the people were to remember or to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, in Exodus, the reason given for keeping Sabbath is that God kept Sabbath. That God, after creating the world in six days, rested on the seventh day. So that we, as image bearers of the God who created everything, are also to pause and to rest once a week. In Deuteronomy, the rationale is different. In Deuteronomy, the reason for keeping Sabbath is that the people were to remember that they once were captives in Egypt, but now God had freed them. That that once their value and their worth came from what they could produce, that once their value and worth came from being commodities, and yet now God had freed them, and so they were valuable and they were worthy simply because they were God's free people. Somebody say amen. So, so, so there was a, a remembering who God is, and there was a remembering who the people were as the rationale for keeping Sabbath. And Sabbath was intertwined with all of life. A weekly day of rest. And it included everybody. Even if you were not Israelite, if you were a visitor, if you were a foreigner, if you were a guest, if you were a refugee, you too were to get the gift of a weekly rest. It was for the land. Every seven years, the fields were to lay fallow, to be rejuvenated and to rest. And God said, I will provide for you on that seventh day. It was for the animals to rest once a week. And then on the seventh year to get an entire year of rest. God says the seventh year of rest is even going to be good for the wild animals. And then every 50th year, an entire year of jubilee where ancestral lands would be returned to their rightful owners, lands that had been sold off to provide for their their owners, those would be returned. Sabbath was woven throughout the entire imagination of what it meant to live as the people of God. But we understand the human tendency to warp God's good gifts into vehicles for our own selfish purposes. We, we understand that tendency, don't we? And, and, and so while the Sabbath was meant to be a gift of rest, a reminder of God's character and our freedom, Israel is tempted to turn the Sabbath into a way to manipulate God. 
so that Jesus in his ministry is opposed by some religious leaders for healing people on the Sabbath. Why? Because they believe that if they could keep Sabbath perfectly, if they could abstain from anything that might be perceived as work, then God would be compelled to intervene more quickly for his people. So Jesus' healing on the Sabbath was a threat. There's a sequence here that we all ought to be able to relate to. God gives us good gifts. We take those gifts and we turn them into obligations. And those obligations become burdens. Years ago, I mentioned to somebody that I had my Sabbath day coming up. And this person said something like, oh. I'm so glad Jesus freed us from having to keep the Sabbath. And I thought, that actually makes a lot of sense. Given our tendency to turn God's good gifts into burdens. So we think that Jesus comes to free us from the things that God gave us for our good. It's not just Sabbath, is it? We, we do this with lots of things. People get married and they receive the other person as a gift. And then you start to notice a few things, just a few things about their personality. That if it were up to you, you would have done differently. And so you work to to try to help this person improve themselves. As a way of getting what you want from this person. And so the marriage shifts from being a gift to being a burden. The single person who who needs somebody to be okay, who, who needs to be attached to somebody to be complete, will always put too much expectation, too much burden, too much hope on this mythical, perfect person. Some of you know what it is to have been stuck in a really terrible job, to have prayed and worked for a new job, and then to have received a new job that that used your gifts, your talents, that actually paid you what you deserved. And then you noticed your friend getting paid more at a slightly better job. And instead of receiving the job as a gift, it too becomes a burden because it's not as good as what they have. Isaiah 58, in many different ways, asks us, are you tired enough of living under the captivity of your own obligations? Are you tired enough to receive God's gifts? Are you willing to open your hands, to release your control, to release your manipulating tendencies? Are you ready, finally, To stop going your own ways. To stop serving your own interests. To stop pursuing your own affairs. Are you tired enough of trying to save yourself from yourself that you are willing to receive the unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted, unfair grace of God in your life? God invites tired people and captive people to honor the Sabbath, to delight in a holy day of rest, not as an obligation, not as a transaction, 
but as a way of receiving again the grace of our God. So so the Sabbath reminds us that God saves us from ourselves by directing our paths, or what our passage calls our ways. And and I want to define paths as where we're going, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Do you know where you're going? Every decision that you and I make takes us somewhere. Our decisions lead us somewhere. Do you know where your decisions are leading you? This week I saw on on Instagram a video of a, of a younger artist at an award show bumping into an older artist. And, and the older artist said to this, this, this younger man, said, um, I've, I've been watching you. And I've been seeing how you include your family in your art. I've noticed how, how when you travel, you bring your whole family with you. I've noticed how important your children are to, to you so that, that you don't leave them behind. He said, I didn't do that. He said, I I left my family behind to pursue my art. I left my children behind. He said, and a great gap has opened between me and my children. Every decision that we make takes us somewhere. Do we know where we are going? For the people of God, we are meant to be going toward the love of God and toward our neighbors with the love of God. That's where we go. To the love of God and to our neighbors with the love of God. And how many of you know there's a gazillion ways that we can do that? Right? It's going to look different for all of us. That's the the creativity of following God. But that's the direction for all of us. We're moving to the love of God and to our neighbors with the love of God. We can think of Sabbath as stopping. Stopping. As stopping our going, stopping our moving for a day. Because we all need regular course corrections, don't we? In college, I did uh, a fair bit of backpacking in in western North Carolina, which is very mountainous. And and so our teachers taught us how to use a topographical map. And, And you find yourself on the map. And then you have a compass to get from point A to wherever you were going to camp that night. Let's call that point B. And, and the problem was that, that you're looking at where you're going, but you can't see where you're going from where you're standing. Because there are valleys in between you and where you're going. And there's mountains and there's streams. And, and you can only see a little bit of the way. And so what you do is you, you find where you are on the topographical map. And then you find the next landmark that you can see on the map and with your eyes. And then you use your compass to say, okay, so I need to go in this direction to get to my next point of contact. And so then you, you go down into the valley and you can't see the next point of contact anymore because you're surrounded by the forest and you're in the, in the valley. But you have your compass that as long as you follow that, at some point you're going to come up and you're going to be where you're supposed to be. And then you take your next compass sighting to the next point of contact and eventually you get from point A to point B. You get to where you need to go. The, the, the thing that, that you have to watch out for is that if you are even a little bit off on your compass orientation, 
by the time you get to where you think you're supposed to be, you could literally, Daniel, you know this, be miles off course, right? And now you're confused because now you look at the map where you're supposed to be and it's not where you actually are. And your mind starts imagining things. Well, maybe, maybe that actually is the mountain that I'm supposed to be at. Maybe that really is the stream that I'm supposed to be at. And you get lost. Even the slightest deviation from your compass can take you way off track, which is why you need regular points to recalibrate your direction. Some of you are actually really good at taking yearly retreats. Some of you go away somewhere. Some of you just put on a calendar. Others of you do really good at taking quarterly retreats and you reflect and you journal, and, and what has God been doing? And that's all well and good. Don't stop that. But I actually think that God knows we need a weekly course correction. I actually think that if we wait for quarterly, or yearly, or worse of all, if we wait until we know we are lost, it's often too late. What do I mean? We, we, we get so far off course that we can't find our way back. Or we get so far off course, we go, it's not worth trying to find my way back. I'm just going to go with this. Sabbath gives us a weekly opportunity to course correct. To, to, to discover whether our paths are leading to the love of God and, and, and bringing the love of God to our neighbors or whether we have gotten confused. Ask yourself, how often do I stop and evaluate my path? How often do you do that? By redirecting our paths, the Sabbath reminds us that God saves us from ourselves. The second P, what's the second P? Come on, see, that's why you do alliteration. Passions, that's right. The Sabbath reminds us that God saves us from ourselves by renewing our passions, what our passage calls our interests. And I want to define passions or interests as what we love. Human beings, you've heard me say this before, are not primarily thinking beings. We do not think our way through the world. We are not primarily believing beings. We don't believe our way through the world. We are primarily loving and desiring beings. We are created with affections, and those affections lead us different places, which is why God, why Jesus came to give us new hearts, amen? New loves, new desires. Because we are primarily loving beings, we are susceptible to loving what doesn't love us back. We are also susceptible to thinking that we have to earn the love that we desire. So how does Sabbath renew our passions, renew our loves? For Christians, Sabbath is not a day for self-care. Self-care is important. Do the self-care thing. But Sabbath is different than that. Sabbath is centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the early Christians were, were, were so turned upside down by the resurrection that they, they said, well, we can't just celebrate this once a year. <laughs> Easter isn't enough. They said every single Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. That they called Sunday the Lord's Day because they needed that weekly reminder of their Savior's resurrection. The reality that changed everything. This is the gravity 
the resurrection of Jesus, the gravity which causes us to stop our daily work, to pause, to rest. It's all held together by our Lord's resurrection. If you are like me, every week you find yourself loving something that cannot love you back. Or can we say loving someone who's not going to love you back every week. And these misdirected loves can never fill us up. They will only deplete us over time. Jesus, who identifies himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, invites us to abide with him and rest with him, to lay down our burdens and learn shalom, peace from him. So as we gather in worship together around the resurrected Christ, the junk loves, the parasitic loves are released from our hearts. And the singular love of God for which we are created finds its home in our hearts again. Am I saying that if our hearts love God, we won't love anything or anybody else? No, (laughs) most definitely not. You were created for love. But as we gather around Christ together, all of our passions, all of our loves, all of our desires are renewed and they all take their rightful place. So the parent who has been withholding love from the child who is misbehaving is freed and loves the child regardless of their behavior. The person who has burdened their friend with unmeetable expectations is freed by the love of God and now is able to see and accept their friend exactly how they are, for exactly who they are. The person who is measuring their self-worth by the acceptance of the group they are a part of is freed by the love of God And loves themselves enough to stay rooted regardless of the reaction of the group. A person who loves what cannot love us back. A person who loves what can only lead to captivity is a person who needs saving from themselves. And that's all of us. That's all of us. What if you were to give Jesus a full day every week to renew your passions, to renew your love? What if you were to give the Holy Spirit the margin to clear away the false loves that have accumulated around your heart so that you might be free to love truly and fully? By renewing our passions, the Sabbath reminds us that God saves us from ourselves. Last one. Hey, Jared, you, you want to come on up? Thanks. The Sabbath reminds us that God saves us from ourselves by ordering our, what was the last P? Come on, priorities. I'm going to start doing this more. I'm just going to do alliteration for the whole sermon, Candace. It's going to be amazing. Priorities are what we do, what our passage calls our affairs. 
By directing our paths and renewing our passions, the Sabbath proclaims that God saves us from ourselves. The last thing I think we see in these verses is, is, is how the Sabbath orders our priorities. So where we're going, what we love, and now what we do. All right. You all do a lot. That's what I know about new community. You all do a lot. When I first met Derek and Arcel, they were just about to retire. And they said, oh, we're ready to retire. We're going to have all this time. We're going to travel the world. Let me tell you something about how busy Derek and Arcel are since they retired. We do a lot. Close your eyes for just a minute. Just, just a quick like, little exercise here. Close your eyes for a second. And I want you to picture what you do on, on any given day. Let's say tomorrow. What do you do for the first hour you are awake? What's everything you do for the first hour after you get out of bed? Okay, now what do you do after that first hour until you are officially working? That might be paid work. That might be unpaid work. What do you do? Picture it. What do you do for your morning stretch of work? What does that look like? What are you doing? What about your lunch break? Do you take a lunch break or do you just keep on working? Do you keep on doing? Do you keep on accomplishing? What about the afternoon? When you hit that after lunch sluggishness and you got to hit that caffeine again. What are you doing in the afternoon? What about all the stuff that you couldn't get done during the day? Where does that go? What's dinner like? Is it restful? Is it rejuvenating? Is it peaceful? Is it something else? What do the hours after dinner look like? What are you doing then? What about everything that can't get accomplished during the week that gets pushed to the weekend? Okay, so hold that. You can open your eyes. Hold, hold what you do. I, I, I'm guessing it's a lot. I probably just stressed half of you out. You're like, I was doing good for a minute. And now I'm getting anxious again. We do a lot. How much of what you do is done consciously with God? How much of what you do, what you just pictured just now, is done consciously depending on the Holy Spirit? Okay, now before you start to feel, feel guilty about that, uh, let's just all acknowledge that humans are terrible multitaskers. Amen? So it's okay, it's okay. This is why people become monks. And nuns. Amen. We need them. Say, I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to be aware. But, but for the rest of us, we got a lot going on. And it's difficult to do all that we do mindfully in the presence of God. Mindfully dependent on the Holy Spirit of the living God. Now, we want to keep growing in that. Amen. We, we want to keep growing in that intimacy over the course of our lives. But we are terrible multitaskers. And the problem is, when we never reflect on what we are doing, we never ask why we are doing what we're doing. Some of what we're doing is obvious and it doesn't need reflection. 
Maggie leaves the house at 7 a.m. to go student teach, which means I feed our boys at 7.15. I don't need to pause and ask why I do that. They will remind me. They do remind me regularly why I do that. But there is a whole bunch in your life that deserves reflection on why you're doing what you're doing. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 says that we are not to conform to the patterns of this world. I describe the patterns of this world as as, as societal treadmills, right? Like you get on the thing and you just keep going because that's the thing. That's the direction I'm going. This is what I've been doing. So this is what I keep on doing. This is what everybody else around me is doing. So I just keep doing it. Some of you grew up in, in, in families that prioritized the best education possible for you so that you could get into the best university possible, so that you could get the best paying job with the most status possible, so, 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 so that you could then afford to live in the best neighborhood possible, so that your kids could go to the best schools possible, so that they could get into the best university possible, so that they could get the best high job, paying job possible. So, 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 so. And it's a treadmill. And is there any space, regardless of what your treadmill looks like, to stop and to ask, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why are these my priorities? Who told me that this is how I have to spend my time? When when I first started kind of observing Sabbath and I discovered, well, this is really good. (laughs) I was like telling everybody, you know, Sabbath, God give us this gift of Sabbath. And people are like, no, I'm not really interested. Like, well, that, that's strange. It's really, it's really good. Why, why, who doesn't want a day of rest? And then over time I I developed a, a theory about our reluctance to observe Sabbath. And it's this margin for rest and reflection is scary. Considering where my path is taking me is scary. Being honest about what my loves and passions actually are, not what I say they are, but what they actually are, that's a scary thing to reflect on. And maybe most of all, reflecting on my priorities, on what I do, that's scary. Why? Because if what I'm doing is leading me away from the love of God and and, and loving my neighbors with the love of God, then I'm going to have to stop doing it. Or I'm going to have to start doing something else. The same reason I was getting out of bed is a reason that many of us don't want to keep the Sabbath. Because we don't want to sit with how we need to be saved from ourselves. Because you see, honoring the Sabbath will inevitably mean changing your life. you will have to start doing some different things. And you're going to have to stop doing some things. Again, when I was first starting to keep Sabbath, I, I found myself very surprised that um, every, every morning of my Sabbath, I, I, I tended to feel pretty funky. I didn't feel very spiritual. <laughs> I felt angsty. I thought, like, well, this feels wrong. This is the Lord's day. I should be, you know, I don't know what, like spiritual ecstasy or something. I don't know. I just felt funky though. And then what I started to realize over time is that this was the one day of the week with enough margin to be able to reflect on my paths, on my passions, 
on my priorities, which meant it was the one day of the week where there was enough margin to actually repent. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't, I don't like repenting. I mean, I like being on the other side of repentance because God is faithful. I, I don't like realizing I got some stuff to repent of. So uh, here's where you need, you need your bulletin. I want, I, I want us to be in, in, in like ridiculously practical today about this. Uh, Lent starts on Ash Wednesday, which is not this Wednesday, but next. And during Lent, there are six Sundays. So the invitation to New Community Covenant Church, whether you're online, whether you're listening later, whether you're here today, the invitation is to keep Sabbath for each Sunday during Lent. And just pay attention to what your reaction was to that. <laughs> to keep Sabbath each Sunday during Lent. Why, why are we doing this? First, Sabbath was always meant to be communal. Sabbath is not something you do on your own. It was an invitation to the people of God to live in a certain rhythm together. A rhythm of good work and then good rest and worship. Always meant to be communal. So that's why we're doing it together. Second is, uh, as I already mentioned, the, the, the church has always understood Sunday to be Resurrection Sunday. To be the Lord's Day. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ which pulls us together in worship and a holy rest. So my invitation to you is to keep Sabbath every Sunday during Lent. Okay, now here's what I know about you, New Community Covenant Church. Some of you right now are going, okay, now what exactly does that mean? What am I allowed to do? What am I not supposed to do? You're missing it if that's where your head's going right now. Just set that all aside. Just pretend that someone is giving you a gift right now. And you would not look at that gift and go, now what am I allowed to do with this gift? What am I not? It's just a gift. It's just a gift. It's just grace. I got to be practical. You got to think about it. Yes, yes, yes. I get it. I get it. But let your first instinct be, I want to receive God's gift from me. God's good gift from me. Okay. Now let me get a little bit more on your business. In addition, I want to invite you to be in person in worship during Lent. So if you're online, don't feel bad. We love you. Amen, church. We love you. We're glad that you're here online. But if you have mostly been online... My invitation is choose one or two Sundays during Lent where you're going to be in person, if at all possible. If you're out of state, we get it. Don't worry about it. If your rhythm has been like, "Ah, I've been coming once a month in person, make it twice. Make it twice a month. A couple times a month, make it three times a month. The people of God are called by the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be together in worship and rest. Because here's the thing. My my hope is that if, if, if enough of us, if a critical mass is observing Sunday as Sabbath, there's actually going to be time to, I don't know, go out to lunch with each other afterwards. To not be like, oh, I got to get home to do get, get caught up. I got to check my email. Or to say, hey, uh, it's going to be a beautiful afternoon. You want to meet up by the lake later? Let's go on, let's go on a, a walk by the lake. So we need to be together. Okay, I'm going to push a little bit more. Last one. This is, this is, the, this is the most radical one right here. Be on time. I know, crazy. Okay, so it's actually in your bulletin. It's actually in your bulletin. Oh, so go ahead and open it up. Some of you are like, this is really remedial. I know, I know, I know. 
So if you're online, let me just describe what's in our bulletin so you can kind of jot it down on a piece of paper. On, on the left side is every Sunday during Lent, starting with February 26th, ending with April 2nd, six Sundays. Cross the top, three columns, taking the day for worship and rest. Second column, attending worship in person. Third column, arriving in time for the call to worship. I know that's the, that's the, that's the real stretch. I get it. I do get it. Thank you to the five of you who were here this morning for the call to worship. Bless you. Why, why, why? Every single week, our worship leaders spend the entire week prayerfully preparing the worship set that they're going to lead you in every single Sunday. And, and, and the worship set starts from the call to worship. So when you and I come late, we are actually depriving ourselves of, the, of a pretty significant invitation to join our voices and our bodies and our hearts with the rest of the people of God in worship. We're depriving ourselves of that, of that possibility. Not only that, the call to worship every Sunday is not just like a thing we do because that's what you do. The call to worship is a call away from all of the busyness, all of the tasks, all of the responsibilities, all of the stress, all of the anxiety, all of the false loves and affections and allegiances. The call to worship is the call, is the invitation for the people of God to be reconstituted again in a visible form, having been scattered for mission all week long. Now we come back together to bear witness to what God has been doing all week long in worship. So when Sharice or when Esther, or when Matt, or when Brandon, or any of our worship leaders stand before us and call us to worship, they are doing something profound. They are literally calling the people of God who have been scattered to our work, to our stresses, to our lives, back together. To collectively, with one voice, lift up high the name of Jesus again. Am I preaching to anybody this morning? So church, our, our theme for 2023 is praise and prepare. Those two words. As we are celebrating 13 years of God's faithfulness to our church, we are making room to intentionally praise our God and to learn how to grow in our posture of praise. And as we praise our God, we are being prepared for the next season of community, ministry, and outreach as reconciled reconcilers. I find it very interesting that we discover ourselves entering a four-month season, 120 days, in which we are asking God to do something miraculous by bringing us into St. Ambrose. Because of the uh, immensity and the impossibility of this project, we might be tempted to try to, to save ourselves. To try to figure out how we can make the finances work. To try to figure out, well, what are we going to do with all that space? To try to convince our denomination that this wild and incredible vision is actually quite reasonable and quite secure. Might it be God's grace to us that this vision is so big, so impossible, so beyond our capacity to have dreamed it up that we have to confess that we cannot strategize our way there. We cannot plan our way there. We cannot fundraise our way there. We cannot vision cast our way there. We cannot save ourselves 
the way there. Might it be also that this corporate season of praise and preparation can change the way that each of us individually are interpreting the impossible things in our own lives? Might St. Ambrose become symbolic for you of the impossible thing in your life? Some of us have been trying to save ourselves for a very, very long time. We have been working so hard to direct our own paths. We've been working so hard to protect our own passions. We have been working tirelessly to stabilize our own priorities. And we are so tired. It has been so long since some of us have accepted the delight of God's Sabbath rest. And if we're honest, our paths have lost their way. Our passions have made us captive. And our priorities are not actually what we want to prioritize with our one precious life. So let me end this sermon in the same way I ended the first sermon in this series. With Jesus' gracious invitation to all of us. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you whose paths have led away from my love, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you whose passions have imprisoned your joy, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you whose priorities have left you hopeless and cynical, and I will give you rest. Your God invites you to honor and delight in his Sabbath. Remember again the God in whose image you are created. Remember again that Christ has freed you from anything that made you captive. Hear again his promise to you. Then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray, church. Lord of the Sabbath, thank you from, for saving us from ourselves. In our sin, Lord, we had no hope of rescuing ourselves. Each of our attempts to save ourselves led only to new burdens, obligations, and lifeless duties. Jesus, thank you for taking our sin onto yourself that we might be saved. Saved even from ourselves. Thank you for the gift of Sabbath. Would you show us, please, the gift that this holy day is? Would you use these Sundays during Lent to refresh your people, to direct our paths, renew our passions, to order our priorities? Would you save us again from our futile and exhausting attempts to save ourselves? Make us delight in you. The mouth of the Lord has spoken and we receive 
all that you have promised. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.